We're going to be studying the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And uh, one of the convictions I have of studying this is I started to realize that this, this covenant is significant. It's, it's huge. And in fact, I'm going to say something that may be interpreted as outlandish and maybe even untrue, but I'm going to say it anyways. The covenant with Abraham is the key to understanding what in the world saving faith is all about. Um, understanding the covenant with Abraham is the key to understanding the rest of the biblical narrative from Genesis 12 to the very end of Revelation 22. And in fact, if we don't rightly understand the Abrahamic covenant, we don't have an understanding of what it is and what it entails and what it promises, then we are destined, prone to misinterpret, mis misunderstand the rest of the Bible. And if you read the book of Romans, the whole book of Romans hinges upon an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. And what that means is in order to make sense of the New Testament book of Romans, you have to understand the covenant with Abraham. And if we don't understand the covenant of Abraham, we can't understand anything about the book of Romans. And the same applies to the book of Galatians. And so, brothers and sisters, our goal in studying the covenants are twofold. One, to become better Bible readers. Secondly, to come into a deeper relationship with God, experiencing his love for us. And I believe the Abrahamic covenant is probably the most significant one to help accomplish those things. And so there's a weightiness uh, to what we're about to do this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me because we're wading into deep waters. So, Father, we ask that you would fulfill in us what it is that you desire for us, as Romans 8 says, to come into the conformity of Christ. We ask also that you would grant us the Holy Spirit to accomplish the things for which he was sent in us to secure us as a deposit, guaranteeing the things that you have promised, that he is the one who applies the work of Jesus on our life. He is the one who purifies, who grants us the gifts. He is the one that illumines our minds to understand the scriptures. He is the one that illumines our minds to behold the wonders and the beauty and the glory of Christ. And so God, we're asking that you would pour out your spirit in this place and that you would grant us all the things that are ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to glory in you now. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to, I've designed this sermon in three parts. Part one is going to be looking at the covenant with Abraham in the four passages that are given to us in the book of Genesis. So Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22. And we'll spend some time uncovering, unpacking, and discovering what the covenant with Abraham was all about and what it entailed. The second part is we're going to then look at how the covenant with Abraham unfolds throughout the biblical storyline up until the point that the nation of Israel enters what's called the promised land. And then thirdly, what we're going to do is I'm going to take us into Romans chapter 4 where we're going to see how significant the Abrahamic covenant is to understanding the gospel the person of Christ, what it means to be the church and the people of God. 
and why the Abrahamic covenant is so important for us today. It's not an academic endeavor. This is something which is significant. And we'll see that the very gospel itself hangs on how we understand the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the book of Galatians was Paul's attempt at writing to a church who was distorting the gospel and what they were distorting, the, how they were distorting the gospel was they were muddying the waters of what the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant was. And so Paul says, if you just understood the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. So you've got to know these things. And so that's where we're going to go uh, this morning. So let's go Genesis chapter 12. We're going to begin there in verse 1 with Abraham's call, where Yahweh himself calls Abraham to faith. And we read it in verse 1. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, and I have to stop and just say, when we read before chapter 17, Abraham is called Abram. That's his original name, but his name is changed in Genesis 17. And so as we read before 17, it'll be Abram, but I'm going to say Abraham because we're going to treat him with his new name, not his old name. So that's why that is. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with them. We're going to jump down to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So the very calling of Abraham is also embedded this promise of offspring, land, and universal blessing. And you'll read about that in your workbook, so I'm not going to spend time on that. But I will say in verse 7 that God kind of um, basically boils down the promise to Abraham in this, these terms, to your offspring I will give the land. And so it's twofold really. The blessing is the fact that the offspring will be given the land and then through the offspring in the land there will be blessing to all. Now, Abraham, when he was called, it's really important to understand who he was when he was called. In fact, Abraham was an ungodly idolater when God called him out of the land of Ur to the place where he was telling him to go. We see this in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua is bringing the nation of Israel together after they had already um, gone into the promised land and conquered the nations that were there. And he brings them together to recall for them the things that God has done. And he starts out by saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So it's important to realize that when Abraham was called of God, he was called of God when he was still ungodly and he was an idolater and he had no interest in Yahweh. That's really significant because Abraham was not on some sort of, he wasn't seeking God. He wasn't on some sort of spiritual journey to just find myself. It was nothing like that. He was content and happy and worshiping false gods. And God says, you there, Abraham, you're mine. Come to me. That is encouraging to us. Because what that means for us today is, you know what? 
God is calling each of us, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of where we're at in our sin issues, God is calling us to himself. You don't have to get yourself right first to go to God. You don't have to polish yourself off and clean yourself up and make yourself presentable before you can go to God. God says, I want the dirt and all. Because I want, I want to take you, this filthy sinner, and I want you to come to myself that I will cleanse you. And I will do for you what it is that you need most. Forgiveness, righteousness. That's why Jesus says in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. And he says, I came not to call the righteous. I came to call who? Sinners. You don't have to get your act together before you come to God. No, you come to God in order to get your act together. That is so beautiful. All right. And then Yahweh makes a covenant with Abram. Abraham. Chapter 15. Pick it up in verse 1. After these things, and there's a lot of fun stuff you can read about. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And notice the very first thing that God does to introduce himself to Abraham. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Another translation would say, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield and your reward. So reassuring, so, so much of this affection of, Abraham, here I am. I'm your shield, your protector, your refuge. I'm also your great reward. I will satisfy you in ways you've never dreamed of. I will be for you what it is you need most. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's kind of what's happening here. So then naturally we would think Abraham would reply with, oh, I love you, God. You're amazing. Let's, let's read it. Verse 2. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Well, in other words, thank you for your great introduction. But you promised me, Genesis 12, that I was going to have offspring and land and blessing. I don't have any kids. He's 75 years old at this time. It's kind of like the clock's ticking. I don't know, like, how's this going to work? My adopted child is going to have to be the heir of everything I have. And so God replies to him, verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so God brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I don't know if you can imagine a moonless sky with no light pollution from a city, no airplanes, no satellites in the sky. If you've ever been out in the woods or camping or something like that where you've actually seen that, you know that the stars are just so numerous. And so God says, look at the stars, Abram. Okay. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how many kids you're about to have. Oh. So what is Abraham's response? Oh, come on. No. Verse 6. And Abraham believed Yahweh. And God counted it to him as righteousness. 
That verse right there, chapter 15, verse 6, now becomes the standard and the model for what biblical saving faith is. Which means from here on out, if you ever want to know what it means to be saved of our, from our sins and the wrath of God, if you ever want to know what it means to be saved and get to go to the presence of God and the new heavens and new earth, Genesis 15, 6 is your answer. You hear God's word, you hear God's promise, and you say, okay, I trust you. And when we do that, God says, because of your trust and faith in me, you are righteous. Now you may think, how's that, how's that true? You have to remember, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, he's going to quote this text. And he's going to say, Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. And, 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 and you understand, for all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. We, we get that, right? Well, right after that, he's going to use this verse to describe how one is justified by faith. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, you want to know how to get righteous? You want to know how to get justified and forgiven of your sins from the wrath of God? Look at Abraham. That's how. Or in Galatians chapter 3, he quotes it again. And the whole argument of Galatians hinges upon this verse. Well, not only that, but the Apostle James, he actually says... Or he quotes this verse and says, if you want faith that will actually save you, you got to go and look to Abraham because that's the kind of faith that God desires. So this verse, Genesis 15, 6, is the key. It's the model and the standard of all biblical faith. Significant. And then we read in verse 7. God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. To possess. So once again, Yahweh promises land. He promised them offspring in verse 5. He promises land in verse 7, to which Abram asked the question, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I, I, need, I need some rock solid evidence that you're going to come through. And so God obliges. He says in verse 9, Bring me a heifer. Three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each over against the other. But the birds he did not cut in half. So just picture this for a moment. God says, I want all these animals. You're going to slaughter them, cut them in half, and you're going to lay them one against another. So you're going to lay them out like this, and there's going to be a pathway between the two. The birds, however, you just kill them and lay them there. And so you have nine animals. It's a bloody mess. And then we pick it up in verse 17. Now remember, the whole thing that is happening right here is in response to what Abram asked, which is, how can I know? So God says, let's kill some farm animals. And so you see how weird this is getting. Okay, it gets weirder. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So it's night, you can't see anything. Smoking fire pot, flaming torch now starts to go between the animals. What in the world? And on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land. Sorry for the interpreter on this one. 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. All the ites. And do you see what happens? Animals laid open, fire, pot, flaming torch goes between the animals. Conclusion is God has made a covenant. Guaranteeing that Abraham will have the land. Okay, so what in the world is that about? This is a bizarre ceremony. Yes. UK pastor John T. Rhodes describes it like this. Astoundingly, God himself is walking through the torn animals. And by doing so, he's saying, I will take on myself the conditions for fulfilling my covenant with you. And if the conditions are broken, I will take the punishment for them. I, God Almighty, Lord of hosts, will be torn in two. And I will undergo death if this covenant is not kept. So God signs the covenant promises with his own blood. And Rhodes goes on to write, remember Abraham's question that prompted the ceremony in the first place. How can I be sure you will give me this place and all those descendants and bless me? And God's answer is, I swear by my own life. In other words, God sees these animals with the blood everywhere cut in half. And he walks through them saying this. May I become like these animals if I don't come through in what I promised for you, Abraham. I swear to you, it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but when you have a ceremony like that and God's swearing by himself and guaranteeing things by blood and saying, I'm going to lay my own life down to guarantee these promises. We're in serious, serious discussion here about who God is and what he is for us. And then Yahweh seals the covenant with a sign. Genesis 17. By the way, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You just saw God walk through these animals and swear to you by himself, I guarantee you this is about to happen. How pumped up would you be? This is awesome. I'm guaranteed. God can't lie. And so he said, and it's going to happen. And then you read Genesis 16. I don't know if you've ever read it, but when you read it, you read about Sarah and Abraham growing impatient about the offspring. And so Sarah gives her maidservant, her servant, Hagar, to Abraham in order for them to sleep together and produce an offspring. The very next thing after the ceremony of confidence and assurance, Abraham takes matters into his own hands and starts walking by sight and not by faith. And you're thinking, Abraham, what is your deal, dude? Are you serious? You just had this amazing ceremony in chapter 15 and now you're taking matters into your own hands. You're growing impatient and you're going to walk by the flesh and not by faith. What is your deal? So then we pick it up in chapter 17. How does God respond to Abram, Abraham's disobedience and lack of faith? When Abraham was 99 years old. Now mind you, when the promises were first given, he was 75. This man has been waiting for 25 years for God to come through with his promises. That's patience. I don't know about you, but th- like as good Americans, we, don't, we have no concept of waiting on God for 25 years. We microwave Pop-Tarts in our culture. 
So here it is. The Lord appears to Abram and says to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless so that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God gives Abraham conditions for this covenant. And there's two sets. Verses 1 and 2, God says, here are the conditions for the covenant that I made with you. You need to walk before me blameless, which means you need to walk before me in faith. You need to trust me, Abraham. You need to walk by faith. And then the second set of conditions is in verse 9 through 11. God says to Abram, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So the condition, second set of conditions is every male who is among you needs to be circumcised. So Abraham is given this covenant by God. You need to walk by faith. And you need to make sure that the men among you are circumcised. Now the point of circumcision is so that the men who are circumcised will never forget, you need to walk by faith. Every day it's a reminder for these men. Walk by faith. And then God reiterates his covenant promises. Sandwiched between the first set of conditions walk by faith, second set of conditions, circumcise in order for people to remember to walk by faith are the promises in verse 6. In verse 8, verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, same language as Adam and Noah, and I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. In verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Walk by faith, Abraham. I'm going to come through with all my promises. You're going to get the land and you will have offspring. And I'm going to circumcise you and require every male among you to be circumcised to remember that I'm going to give you the land and you're going to have offspring and you need to walk by faith. So the sign serves as a reminder of the covenant. It indicates who is in and who is out. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you want to be in the covenant people of God, you need to be circumcised. That's the only way you're in. So circumcision is the sign of the covenant, which entails the promises of offering uh, an offspring, land, universal blessing. And it marks off those who are included in the covenant people and those who are not. And then Abraham is tested. His faith is tested. Genesis chapter 22. You know this story. I'm going to trust that you either know it or you are faithful to go home and read about it. Because I don't have enough time to unpack it. But God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac in order to test him. Telling him to go to Mount Moriah. Even though... Abraham loves his son Isaac. God says, I'm going to put you to the test to see if you love your son more than you love me. And so they go out. And along the way in verses 7 and 8, Isaac is an intuitive young man. He's observant and he sees that his dad's got wood and matches, but there's no sacrifice. No animal. So he says, Father, where's the animal at? And Abraham says, Yahweh will provide. He will come through. He always does. 
So then he kindles, or he sets up the altar. He lays his son upon the altar and binds him there. He raises his knife about to kill Isaac. And what does God do? God says, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Now I know that you love me. And then Abraham lifts his eyes and sees in the thicket there's a ram caught in the bushes. And God says, sacrifice the ram, not your son. And so what we see in this is that God provides a substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac may live. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place so that the wrath of God will be placed upon Jesus and that we would have life. And so Abraham passed the test and God reiterates his covenant in verses 11 through 13, reminding him, I'm going to do these things for you. I will come through. I will Fulfill what I've spoken. Beautiful. Now how does that, that play out in the rest of scripture? Glad you asked. So from here on out, just imagine. And by the way, we're studying the covenants to give an overview of the entire Bible. That's ambitious, I know. But if you finish with 22 and you begin to read, you read more about Abraham. You will be introduced to the life and the circumstances and what's going on with Isaac. And then eventually you learn about Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob God chose and Esau he hated. And there's more about that coming later. And then you, you have the story of how this works. Then Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you're introduced to Joseph. Joseph comes to the forefront. He's kind of an interesting character. Because of his dreams that he had, his brothers sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, imprisoned, and yet he has more dreams. And the first dreams that got him in prison, now he has new dreams that gets him out of prison. He becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt so that his brothers and his father's house, who are starving because of a famine in Israel, they come to Egypt asking for food and eventually over time, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they go, oh, and he goes, oh, and they cry and they weep and they hug. And, and at first they're fearful. Are you going to kill us because we sold you into slavery? He said, no, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then we see that Joseph ages and he is about to die. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph says, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you notice that? The very, the, the very hope of the people of Israel is one day we're getting out of here. And we're getting out of here because God said we're going to get out of here. He promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we're introduced in Exodus chapter 1. The people are in Egypt and they've been enslaved by the Egyptians. They are becoming fruitful and multiplying. Exodus 1-7. Until God hears their groaning and he knows their pain and suffering. And so God calls Moses in a burning bush and reveals to Moses what his plan is to redeem his people from slavery and to bring them in to the promised land. Exodus 3 verse 7 and 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The very same land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And then we read more in Exodus. We read about the ten plagues. We read about being delivered on the day of atonement. We learn about the people crossing the Red Sea. And eventually when Moses is on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments, the people get into idolatry. And then God curses them by saying, because of your idolatry, none of you who came out of Egypt are going to get into the promised land. How dare you? And then we read in Leviticus all the different laws that are associated with the, with the Mosaic Covenant. And then we pick, up, pick it up in Numbers which describes what's happening to the nation of Israel as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience and their idolatry because of the golden calf. And then eventually we get to the book of Deuteronomy where the nation of Israel, having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, are sitting at the edge of the promised land on a precipice where they're overlooking the land that lies before them. And Moses teaches the people of Israel who are now the second generation of Israelites. And they're the ones who will inherit the promised land. And we pick it up in Deuteronomy 7.22 where God says through Moses to the people, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. And he goes on to promise that they will become a great nation and that they will be in the land. And then we go to Deuteronomy 34, which is the end, very last chapter of Deuteronomy, when Moses is finished teaching the second generation that came out of Egypt what is about to happen to them. And the Lord says to Moses, this is the land. Remember, they're sitting on the precipice. They're all looking at the land before them. God says to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. And the reason why Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land is because he was, when the people were thirsty in the wilderness, God said, you need to go to that rock and you need to speak to it. And when you speak to it, the rock will burst forth with water. But Moses was angry with the people. He's frustrated that they're all disobedient and annoying. So he stands on the rock and he strikes it instead. And so God says, because of your disobedience, you did not trust my word. Because of your disobedience, you don't get to go into the promised land. Joshua is the one who's going to take the people into the promised land. And then we're introduced to the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua, chapters 1 through 10, are a description of how the nation of Israel goes into the promised land, conquering king after king and people after people. And you know the walls of Jericho. You've seen the VeggieTales movie. <laughs> but I, I encourage you, read, read it. And then eventually you get to the summary statement in Joshua eleven twenty three, where Joshua takes... Uh, it says that Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And then from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 21, it's a description of how the nation of Israel was given different allotments of land according to their tribes. And then once the allotment had been handed out, we have another summary statement in Joshua 21 verse 43 that reads like this. Thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. That means the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. For the, Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word 
of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. And then look at those last four words. All came to pass. The promise that God made to Abraham, you are going to have offspring and you are going to have land. In Joshua 21, we read that that promise has been fulfilled. God came through. Beautiful. And then we read on about the Mosaic Covenant, and Pastor Larry will preach on this next week, that embedded in the Mosaic Covenant is this. You need to obey the laws of God if you want to stay in this land because you've received this land as a gift, and I can easily take it from you. So you need to walk by faith. You need to be obedient. And as we read the story in the Old Testament, the rest of it is about the disobedience of the people. They have a kingdom, and eventually you have Saul, David. We learned about that First and Second Samuel. And then you have Solomon and then Rehoboam, and on and on you go, all the kings, until you get to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And at the closing of Second Kings, the closing of Second Chronicles, we read that the people are finally kicked out of the land as a curse because of their disobedience. And they're kicked out, exiled just like Adam and Eve were exiled and kicked out of the garden. And you're left wondering, what now? What in the world? And the Bible leaves us with this great promise and this great hope. God has bigger things and better things and greater things in store for his people. The exile and the curse is just part of the plan. So even though Joshua depicts the promises of God as being fulfilled, the people broke the covenant eventually, they get kicked out of the land, and yet there's this promise that one day there's going to come a Messiah who will in some way restore the land, restore the blessing, and confirm the offsprings. However, Pastor Larry preached last week in Galatians 3.16 that Jesus is identified in the New Testament as the offspring of Abraham. And so we read, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And so what that means is Jesus is the singular offspring of Abraham. He is the one who has inherited all the promises given to Abraham. And what that also means is if anyone is going to receive the promises and blessings that were given to Abraham, you have to go to Christ to get them. And that also means the only way you get the blessings and you get the promises is by going to Christ. You are also, some, in some way, you are a co-heir with Christ. That's Romans 8, 17. That we are fellow heirs with Christ. So what that means is we, by faith in Jesus, become the beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham. Because all of the promises made to Abraham find their yes and amen in Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus is the one who provides a greater hope, not just in a little plot of land in, in the Middle East, but he provides hope of a land which is called the new heavens and new earth. 
Now, we don't have time to get into it and unpack it all, but remember what Pastor Larry preached last week, 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we as Christians are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, the Christian hope is to inherit the land that is promised to Abraham and is secured in Jesus. But it isn't merely a small plot of land. The trajectory of the Bible is that God intends to go global. Remember the promise to Abraham, go, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Noah, I wiped everyone out. Now you be fruitful, multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Abraham, I'm making this promise to you. You're going to inherit a land and you're going to be the father of all the nations. In other words, go global. And then the promise to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant is, you are my people and I will be your God and you will be a light to the nations. And then the Davidic Covenant is the promise that David will have an everlasting kingdom and he will sit, one of his descendants will sit upon an everlasting throne and he will rule over the world. And then you get to the New Testament, and what is Jesus' last command? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go into the nations and baptize them and teach them. You see, God's mind is always global, global. Covenants are the very bedrock and foundation of missions. Brothers and sisters, that's why I love Golden Hills Community Church. We got a global outreach ministry because we know our God is global. That's his intention. That's his desire. And in Christ, it's not just that we receive a little plot of land in, in, in Canaan or the promised land in, in the Middle East. It's that God has promised us to get our eyes off of that little sliver of land that is as big as Connecticut and instead to get your mind on the world. A new heavens, a new world in which righteousness dwells. Oh. All right. Romans 4. I got 10 minutes. <laughs> Romans 4. Let me now show you how Abraham's covenant is significant for us today as Christians. First, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are some folks who read the Bible as if the promises that are made to Abraham only apply to those who are Jewish by race. And so my question is, well, who are the children of Abraham? Who are the descendants of Abraham? Who are those who will inherit the promises of Abraham? Is it only those who are Jewish by race or is there something more going on? So let me answer that question. First, in one sense, yes, the children of Abraham are the Jewish people by race. We read that in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? And look at this little clause. Our forefather according to the flesh. So Paul simply says, okay, I want to acknowledge the fact that Abraham is our forefather. He came before us. And according to the flesh or according to our race, we are descendants of him. Next, then we go to John chapter 8. 
And I want to make sure we understand, and by the way, Paul does this elsewhere in Philippians 3, and, and there's a whole bunch of other places, but again, we don't have enough time to go through all of them. But I will show you in John 8, even Jesus understands that some people are descended from Abraham, and that's what it means to be a child of Abraham. We read in John 8, where Jesus tells them that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, that they should believe in him. And if they believe in the Son, the Son will set them free. And so they reply, we are offspring of Abraham. We are children of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I, I guess they forgot the whole 400 years in Egypt. But nonetheless, how is it that you say you will become free? To which Jesus replies to them. But eventually Jesus flatly acknowledges the fact that they are indeed by race and nationality. They are indeed children of Abraham. He says it in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that you have Jewish blood flowing through your veins. I know that. But then Jesus says, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So you're a child of Abraham and yet you're trying to destroy the Messiah. Now, later on, I don't have time to get into it, but you can read it. Jesus eventually says, I know that you're a child of Abraham, but you need to realize you're also, your daddy is the devil. Whew. What happened to like meek and mild like Jesus? He, he says, look, yes, you can have a national racial heritage, but you must not ignore the spiritual heritage that you inherit as well. And if you don't believe in me, Jesus says, then your true father, spiritually speaking, is the devil. But if you believe in me, then your true spiritual father is God. So what Jesus does is gives us categories. Yes, there are people who are children of Abraham by race, but there are people who are children of Abraham by faith, as we'll see in a second. So that's why Paul writes this in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. That's a weird thing to say. You're like, yeah, it is. Last time I checked. But, he says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. You see, in Deuteronomy 29, God tells the people, you better obey me. And then he says, by the way, you can't obey me because you don't have a heart to obey me. And then in verse 30, or in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, read it for yourself. God promises them, but one day I'm going to circumcise your heart and you will be able to obey me. That's the promise. And we'll see in the new covenant how that's fulfilled. But what Paul's saying here is, look, there's outward Jews and there are people who are the people of God inwardly. You can be circumcised in your flesh all you want, but what really matters is whether or not your heart has been circumcised by the Spirit. And then we move to Romans chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, Paul saying, Abraham had two kids, Ishmael and Isaac. One was the, of the promise and one wasn't. So the question is, are you of Isaac or are you of Ishmael? 
Galatians 4, read it. All right, keep going. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Maybe you're not convinced yet. That's fine. This will do it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Verse 6 of Galatians 3 is when Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. And then he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and here's the gospel. Look at it. It's going global. And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the question is, who are the children of Abraham? And the answer is, it depends on what you mean by children. Racially or spiritually. Because racially, it's only the Jews, not the Gentiles. But spiritually, it's both. Because what makes you a child of Abraham is faith. And the question is faith in who? And that's why Galatians 3.16 identifies Jesus as the offspring. You must have faith in Jesus. So the conclusion that we draw from Scripture is that in one sense there are children of Abraham according to the flesh. But in another sense there are children of Abraham who are the people of faith regardless of their race. That is why God desires his church to be comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And that's why, brothers and sisters, racism is the anti-gospel. You understand the, the weightiness of that? If what we just said in the Abrahamic covenant is true, then racism is the exact opposite of the gospel. Let that sink in for a moment. Abraham is counted righteous by faith, not by works. Now let's get into Romans. Oh, let's get into Romans as much as we can. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And we all know that because if you're employed, you never go to your boss and you're like, hey, can I have the gift of uh, pay? No, if you don't get your check, you're like, hey, come on, give me what's mine. And to the one who does not work, and this is the theological point of the covenant with Abraham that applies to us as Christians. And to the one who does not work, but believes, or the Greek is trusts, the one who trusts in him, who justifies the ungodly. That's the nature of God. He justifies the ungodly. Remember, Abraham was ungodly and an idolater when God called him. God justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, brothers and sisters, Hebrew, I mean, Ephesians 2.8 is true. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. Do you see that it's so beautiful? Genesis 15, 6 is basically Ephesians 2, 8. And if we get the covenant with Abraham wrong, we're just in, in bad sorts. 
All right, let's keep going. Verse 9. Is this blessing then, the blessing of being made righteous by faith, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, only for the Jewish people, or also for the uncircumcised, the non-Jewish, the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Or in other words, how did Abraham become righteous? Next question. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This is the Apostle Paul giving you a pop quiz. You've been paying attention? <laughs> Think back to Genesis. Was Abraham declared righteous before or after he was circumcised? What's the answer, church? Before. You pass. Good job. Now do you see why? You can't understand that question unless you understand the covenant with Abraham. And therefore, you can't understand the gospel unless you understand the covenant with Abraham because you are not saved by your race, your intellect, your education, your power, your prestige, your morality, your virtue, your voting record. You're not saved by any of that. You're saved by faith. So, now what marked Abraham as a man of faith? Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal or a mark of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham in his ungodly sinful state heard God call him. He responded with faith and that faith is what God declared him righteous for. And then afterwards... Abraham was then circumcised as a sign outwardly marking the fact that he is counted righteous by faith. That is exactly what new covenant baptism is. You and your sin that you inherited from Adam, you were born in sin and the wrath of God is upon you because of sin. But when you hear the gospel that Jesus came to call sinners, that if you trust that he is enough and his word is true by faith, God will declare you righteous and the blood of Jesus will wash you from all sin and the resurrection of Jesus will give you hope in your heart through the spirit as you are circumcised in your heart. And the mark or the seal that that is true inwardly is to go outwardly and be baptized so that you are identifying with Jesus and being plunged out of the waters and saying, his death is my death. I no longer live, but it's he who lives. And then you rise from the dead and you are dripping wet. I've been clean. I've been washed by Jesus' blood. I identify with his resurrection. I have life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, baptism isn't just, hey, get the kid wet. <laughs> baptism is a momentous occasion where we as the church celebrate the fact that this person has had their heart circumcised by the Holy Spirit and is identifying with the covenant people of God, and they will live forever. <laughs> Which begs the question, are you baptized? If you claim to be a Christian and you are not yet baptized, there's no reason for us to believe you are a Christian. It's, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, oh, no, I totally believe in God. And God says, then you need to be circumcised. And Aaron goes, no, I don't really need to do that. Me and Jesus, we have a, we have our, me, and, me and Yahweh, we have a special thing. I don't, I don't need the public. You'll see. 
Look, brothers and sisters, God has ordained for us two covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that is what marks you off as his. There's more about that I wish we could go into. But let's keep going. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Verse 13, for the promises, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of what? Oh, there's no, okay. Romans, Romans 4.13, that he would be the heir of the world. The world. The world. God intends to go global. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Brothers and sisters, the promises of God which are yours through faith in Christ Jesus, they are yours and they rest on grace. They do not rest on the intensity or the fervency of your faith. They rest on grace. Because you're going to wake up one of these days and feel like you don't believe anymore. And then you're going to go, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. No, stop that. The promises of God rest on Jesus and his grace. And the baptism waters symbolize the fact that God has done this. And so what you need to do is repent and believe. That's it. Just repent and believe. And so, brothers and sisters, when you are assaulted with all kinds of attacks and circumstances you can't explain and you're questioning everything about everything and you're like, God, where are you? Know that the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ and they rest on his grace, not on your faith. Because our faith is weak and feeble and if it all depended on me, I'm done for. And that's why I praise God that it rests on him and not me. Oh, this is good. I'm not sure where we're at. Let's jump down to a few, few verses. It says that in verse 19 that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> so this is Genesis 17 talking here. God's promised him Isaac. Imagine, 100 years old, Abraham and, and Sarah looking at each other. <laughs> How's this going to work? Look at you. You're, you're the walking dead. And she's looking at him going, look at you. <laughs> and their circumstances are completely, there's no reason to believe that what God promised can actually come true. They're good as dead. They're walking around with saggy skin and corpses. And so they're thinking, this is no way. But then look at this. They thought they were good as dead. They were about 100 years old. They didn't even weaken in their faith when they considered Sarah's barrenness. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. Why not? Why didn't, from Genesis 17 on, why didn't he waver in, promise, in, in trusting the promises? It says that he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. How do you give glory to God? Glad you asked. Verse 21. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I know our circumstances can be hard and bleak and you can just go, I don't understand how you're going to do this or why you're doing this, God. But when we give glory to God, it's saying this, but I know despite my circumstances, you are able. You can come through. 
So when you fight and you're battling the thoughts, you diagnose this with cancer and you're thinking, I'm praying, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know what you're going to do, but I know that you can heal me, though you might not heal me. That's where God is glorified. You can do all things. You're able. And so we pray, because of your ability, God, would you do it? And even if he doesn't do it, we still praise him nonetheless. All right, we have to end. (laughs) I want you to be encouraged by this word, this exhortation, the word of God. For when God, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, he, he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. He said, surely I will bless you and multiply you, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, those who have faith in Jesus, the unchangeable character of his purpose, God guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Brothers and sisters, the winds and the waves of turmoil and and suffering in life are going to plunge us and drown us seemingly in their wake. But brothers and sisters, we have an ark. Like we talked about last week, Jesus, the faithful one who's going to get us through. And we're going to be secure because we have an anchor for the soul. And it's this, God has sworn by two things, himself and his word, I'm going to do it. It all rests on me, and I'm going to do it. So you just hold fast. Trust me. I'll get you through it. I'll see you to the end. That's how much God loves us. Oh, God, I don't know what to say about this. I don't even fathom just how unworthy we are to receive such blessings and yet because of Jesus all the promises you made are yes and amen and because of our faith in Jesus you have given them to us for we are co-heirs with Christ all that is promised we claim in the name of Jesus as ours even the suffering that you promised will come For the storms that rage, God, we will be seen through. And so, Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the covenants. We ask that as we leave here this morning that you be pleased to remind us time and time again that you are for us and not against us. And for that reason, to you be the glory and for us the joy. In Jesus' name, amen.